Welcome to the Geek and Review Podcast. I'm Jeremy Pappas, alongside, as always, a man who was raised in the woods so he knows every tree. Killed him a bar when he was only three, Mr. Russell Jones. Russell. That bear was a good friend of mine, and if he hadn't broken the one rule, he'd still be alive today. That's right, and it's bar. Don't you ever say bear. Ever. He's very respect. <laughs> What's going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. I actually have family in town, so I've been doing the whole come see Baton Rouge, whether you like it or not, shtick. <laughs> dun 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 Baton Rouge. Yeah, really. The heart oh, we of went- the Mississippi Delta. We actually went to um, the old state capital in Baton Rouge, which looks like a giant fortress because that's what it was when it was built by the French. And um, they have a lot of really surprisingly interactive and high-tech exhibits inside. Yeah, I was looking at the pictures you posted on Facebook, and it looked like a uh, it looked like a really high-scale museum, like the Audubon and uh, the Audubon Aquarium or something there in uh, New Orleans. It was pretty impressive. I put it on scale with that stuff just because. The thing that really struck me was they have a section where they have the governor's podium that used to sit in the old state capitol, kind Mm -hmm. of preserved and set up. And it has a screen built into it with a lot of speeches listed, like uh, Huey P. Long's uh, barbecue speech from 1937 or Buddy Romer's inauguration speech or, you know, all these different speeches that past governors have given. And it has two little teleprompter mirrors. So you select one of them, it cues the speech up, and it plays the audio of the speech out of the podium. It plays video of the speech on one teleprompter screen, and it scrolls the text of the speech in time with the, you know, the actual video and audio on the other teleprompter screen. So you're hmm. actually standing at the podium looking at the speech as if you, know, you were someone with a teleprompter, which UEP Long, I'm almost dead certain, did not have, but yeah. I could be wrong. <laughs> That sounds really interesting. Uh, from the pictures, usually when you go to a state house, you expect it to be, you know, some old musty paintings and a few little artifacts in cases with like little paper, you know, placards on it. But it was, it looks pretty nice. Yeah, they've also got two rooms upstairs. You can rent out the old Senate room for events. Huh. And we, there was a girl going around with a photographer having her wedding pictures taken. That's fun. Uh, anyway, we, we need to get into what we're talking about today. We're going to keep this a tad shorter um, due to Russell's company. Aforementioned uh, family. Right. Uh, Russ, I'm going to let you set this up because you sort of discovered this, and it's something that not a lot of people are talking about. It's really only grabbed a hold of a few uh, Twitter folk. Yeah. The um, As you know, Gen Con Indie is coming up, and a newsletter went out to the people attending this week. Uh, saying that their Wizards of the Coast is hosting the first ever keynote address at Gen Con Thursday, August 16th. And they're going to be talking about a lot of different things. But one thing that was mentioned specifically that caught the attention of Brian Patterson, who does the webcomic D20 Monkey, was, and I'm trying to pull up the picture here for maximum impact, uh, calling all heroes, your presence is required. Join us for an unprecedented look into the future of Dungeons and Dragons, including the evolution of the game, the rebirth of a fantasy setting and the next generation of art. Now, the rebirth of a fantasy setting immediately grabbed Brian Patterson, who tweeted, wait, 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 hold the phone. Hold the phone. Is it Greyhawk? Oh, dear sweet Vecna, let it be Greyhawk. Which I don't think... At first, I sort of 
eh, I kind of pushed that aside as someone who was trying to hear what they wanted to hear. Because at first, when you, when you first glance, it doesn't seem like it's it's... That's not the first thing that jumps out at me. But... That being said, I'm not a diehard Greyhawk guy, and there are a lot of those out there. The more I post Greyhawk, not not that I joined post Greyhawk, just that I found Greyhawk to be extremely boring and vanilla. And if I wanted to make my own boring vanilla D and D campaign, that's what I'd do. Not real difficult, but uh, and and you know, Wizards agreed with me in Fourth Edition. That's why they never (laughs) released Greyhawk. Uh, But yeah, I. The more I think about it, the more I think that they. They. I mean, this may have some legs, with what they're trying to do, with the whole edition. You know, they're trying to get in all of those older players, or trying to give the older players something that they can, you know, kind of crow about in a positive way. At the same time, Greyhawk, like I said, is an extremely vanilla uh, campaign setting, just from the way it's structured, you know, I mean, it's not, I I know there are, you know, there's a Pantheon and there's yada yada, and there are things about Greyhawk that make it unique, but there's not enough things about Greyhawk that make it unique, that make it, in my mind, really what one could, should consider even a campaign setting. Um, It's a good thing to get a new player involved in, because it is very classic D&D. Uh, and not 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 classic D and D in the sense that it's Greyhawk and it's been around for a while, but classic D and D in the sense that it's pretty generic. So I don't know. Well, there just, could be some there could be some some talk here. You say that it's pretty generic, but I would argue that the reason it's generic is because it has been around for so long that for many people, some of the identifying characteristics of the flavor that comes in D&D is from Greyhawk because it is one of the more or most well-known worlds, you know, since the beginning of D&D. It wasn't the first D&D campaign world, no. but it did, I would argue, impact it the most just in terms of the things that get that get stuck from Greyhawk and kind of filter through into everything else. So you say vanilla, I say legacy. See, and I, and I would I would kind of agree with that to a point, but I see, you know, I look at other campaign settings, and I mean th- those that have been around for almost as long, or have been around for quite a while, and there are things in them that set them apart from one another and from Greyhawk, but but Greyhawk kind of has that that feeling that's very classic. D&D. You know, maybe it's. You know, you know, maybe it's it's like you uh, it's like you say, maybe it's because it's been around for so long. But I I really think that I can separate what is actually going on and kind of separate that from the fact that it's been around for so long. It's just not a whole lot of stuff to do. It seems very it seems very normal and and I say bland, but bland in kind of a good way. If that makes any sense at all. Well, it may be that because, you know, we haven't necessarily played absolutely, you know, drinking straight out of the fire hose Greyhawk. We've always played, you know, bits and pieces of Greyhawk Mm. that find its way in because you do know what you get if you get Greyhawk, right? You get St. Cuthbert. 
Well, right. I mean, I mean, in Greyhawk was pretty much the basis of third edition D and D. I mean, in terms of like flavor. In, well, you're right. In terms of what you played out of the book, I mean, it, it's it's pretty much straight up D and D. That's the way. I, that's kind of the way I think about Greyhawk is being straight up D and D. And you know, it's it, it's there. And I mean, I had I actually created a Saint Cuthbert character for fourth edition, or a Saint Cuthbert deity for fourth edition for a friend of mine who was playing um, in a game that I was doing primarily because he wanted Saint Cuthbert because he was a third edition guy. So, I, I mean, anyone who's played a straight out of the player's handbook third edition game, and I've played many, many, many of those, has played Greyhawk. You know, the only thing that that some might not really delve into are the individual places in Greyhawk. Uh, but again, there's no real big set piece locations. You know, I mean, there are. You even know the characters from Greyhawk. You know, Tenzer, Morden Kane, and Bigby, Melf, mm. Otto, mm-hmm. uh, um. Uh, the Robilar, you know mm-hmm. those characters. You know those, if only because of the of the spells. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, not a terrible thing. I will say this: if this, if they sort of do what they did in third edition, and bring back those elements that they used in third edition in D and D next, uh, I don't know what I would feel about that. That would seem like kind of a step backward. I, I think it depends on how it's done. The, the challenge with doing something like Greyhawk is this. You pick this, you know, long story uh, franchise, basically, Greyhawk, the setting. You bring it back and you say, okay, we're trying to bring everyone back to the table. Look at what we've got. We've got Greyhawk. You guys love Greyhawk, right? So it's a question of do they actually bring Greyhawk back to the table in a way that makes sense you know it introduces it to new players and revives that nostalgia for the old from the old players or do they call it greyhawk and try to do too much updating to it and make it something that is completely not greyhawk see i don't along, think they, along I... the ways along the ways that they kind of did with forgotten realms because they fast forwarded time forward 100 years they made lots of changes to how forgotten realms you know worked and, you know, for someone like me who had just gotten into Forgotten Realms in third edition and was learning more and more about the realms, doing that kind of pulled the carpet out from underneath me. And I, and I didn't necessarily feel like keeping up with and updating to all of this, you know, supposedly right. new content. All these things that you had learned. Here's, the, here's, here's why I don't think that's even a possibility. Because you could fast forward 100 years in Greyhawk and it'd still be the same Greyhawk. That's kind of what I'm trying to... That's, that's kind of what I've, I've gotten, you know... That's kind of what I'm getting in... Uh, of what I'm getting at. Is that Greyhawk doesn't really change. There's Castle Greyhawk and underneath it there's 50 levels of dungeon. And you can go now. Now, uh, I say all of this only to say that because I don't hate Greyhawk at mm-hmm. all. Don't don't think that I hate Greyhawk because I don't. I know Greyhawk pretty well, actually. I mean, clearly, because all this all this Greyhawk knowledge is coming back. <laughs> I'm sitting here going, Wait, what? Um, 
and this is stuff that I'd, I don't almost, I almost don't even consider it Greyhawk so much as I consider it very generic D&D. And I, and, you know, maybe, like you said, it is because that's what it is, but I don't really think so, because Greyhawk is very generic fantasy setting. It's like if you took the Lord of the Rings and you got rid of the rings, and then you would have Greyhawk. If you took away, if you took Eberron and you took away everything that makes Eberron Eberron, you'd have Greyhawk. Greyhawk is like the NGS of campaign settings. NGS is neutral grain spirit. It's what you use to make all different kinds of liquors. Um, you put... Uh, crap. You put some sort of berries in it, and it makes gin. And I feel really bad that I can't remember what that is right now. Nah. It's early. Well, it's not like you run a cooking blog that where you talk yeah. about your extensive knowledge of alcohol right. on it or anything right. like that. Uh, but anyway, it's the... It's the, the that key element that is present in most you know i would i would argue one of the only things that makes greyhawk stand out from just being you know generic D campaign setting number three is the pantheon that's something that is 100 percent legacy and i'll be honest i like the pantheon in greyhawk probably more than any other pantheon that i've ever dealt with and that's you know that's saying something because I, mm-hmm. I didn't mind the, the Pantheon in Fourth Edition D and D, but the Pantheon in Greyhawk, I, or for three point five anyway, I really dug. I miss the 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 deities from from that Pantheon quite a bit. So maybe they'll come back as long as I get my girl glitter gold. I'll be doing good. That's, yeah, that's what I got. Oh, say. girl glitter gold. Yeah, and Fnargalharm. <laughs> I actually knew how to pronounce that at one point. Fnar- Farlangen. Far yeah, Farlangen, that's right. It's one of those words that you look at it and you're like, I don't know how to pronounce that, and then you remember that, yeah, you do. Yep. Um But yeah, you know, I'm interested to see what they're gonna do with it. If if indeed this is what they do with it. Now uh, this is kind of grown a little quicker than than is, I think, warranted. It deserves some some thought, but I don't know if this is what I would hang my hat on immediately. You know, mm-hmm. so. Well, let's ask this then. If it's if it's not Greyhawk, and I would argue that Greyhawk makes the most sense just because it's the one that's been out of circulation technically the longest, and it has possibly the broadest appeal of bringing back old school gamers, you know, to the table, people that may have been ostracized by uh-huh. late third edition and fourth edition. Right. Then what else could be brought back to the table? If they actually do bring a campaign setting that is going to be like the main campaign setting that they launch D&D next with, what would it be? Uh, you know, I'll say <laughs> Forgotten Realms. Forgotten Realms has always been around. People know it really, really well. Mm-hmm. It's really very interesting. It give it. It has Forgotten Realms is kind of like if I look at the three main campaign, campaign settings in D and D, being Greyhawk, Forgotten Realms, and Eberron. Forgotten Realms is a good step between Eberron and Greyhawk. A good step between the two of them. It has a lot of Greyhawk, but at the same time, it has its own set piece elements that. I could see that being the first campaign setting that's released with the D&D rules. Here, see, this is what I think they need to do. I think they need to release all of the player's information, the the core three books, the player's player's guide, the dungeon master's guide, and the monster manual. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, 
release a campaign setting. And I think that campaign setting needs to be Forgotten Realms because that allows people who are going to buy all three books to just add on that extra book. You know, even even give them to a point that you can that you can buy them all at the same time. Mm-hmm. They call it like the 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 D&D ready to go pack. Now you've got mm-hmm. everything you need to go. Now you've mm-hmm. got everything you need to do. The problem being and this is a problem I always had with the third edition campaign setting. Uh, the, the player's handbook specifically, because you get into the player's handbook, the player's handbook tells you how to play, but then they give you very setting specific things. So nine times out of 10, we'd get a new player who would read the player's handbook and get all this information. And then they would put their character together and you'd say, okay, this is what we're doing now. Forget this 15 to 20% of the book that you read because we're doing something different. And they go, well, son of a bitch. Yep. So I, I think we need a basic, no campaign setting information player's handbook, which is difficult to do with deities primarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you you find a way. Yeah. And then at the same time you release a campaign setting, I think that campaign setting is uh, Forgotten Realms. And I honestly, I, I love Ed Greenwood. He is probably one of my favorite authors. I've mm-hmm. never really gotten into, into uh, Forgotten Realms outside of the Elminster books. Yeah. When you gave your list of the three campaign settings, the three maiden you know, flagship campaign settings, and you've left out Dark Sun, there's a whole lot of people out there with their bone weapons that they just put down and immediately started, you know, ululating at the at the phone, going. Yeah. I put Dark Sun. Defilers are already seeking us. <laughs> I put Dark Sun in the same category as Spelljammer, in that it is very. It's very niche. It's not bad, but it's very niche. Ravenloft as well. Ravenloft as well. I was actually just about to say that. Very, very niche. Those are very, very specific campaign settings. Very specific campaign settings. Um, that, that do some really, I would say, wild things with your normal, with what you normally think about for D&D. You essentially turn it, uh, one turns it into post-apocalyptic, one turns it into kind of sci-fi to a certain extent, um, Spelljammer, and the other one turns it into gothic horror. Mm-hmm. And those are, I would argue you know, extreme changes to the rules themselves that you can't really, I mean, it's not something that you want to show a new player right away. You know, if you're trying to teach somebody how to fix a car, you don't show them, you know, a a 2012 Audi, a hybrid, Mm -hmm. you show them a, you know, a a 78 Cuda. (laughs) I mean, you give them something (laughs) that you can get a, you can get a screwdriver in there and you can mess with. You don't have to hook things up with, you don't have to hook, computers up to and things like that you yeah. really get in there and i think if you're going to get under the hood in D and learn what you're doing i think you get under the hood in forgotten realms now anyway because it gives you that interest factor it's not too crazy but it gives you very specific things that are interesting to people you mm-hmm. know the harpers and and that whole campaign that whole setting has really interesting stuff that i think would keep new players playing Here's something that I've I've kind of been thinking about. I know they're not going to do this because I think they've already said several things that have, have indicated that they're not going to follow this. But I think that to go back to, you know, you said put out generic books, then put out a specific campaign setting. Here's what I would argue that they should do. Since, oh, I'm not sure. I know third edition, but since previously, I'm pretty sure 
If you had to be a player, then you, you bought a book. You bought the player's handbook. If you wanted to be a DM and you wanted to you know, get into it as a DM, you had to at least buy two books, The Dungeon Master's Guide and The Monster Manual, right? You need a player's handbook, too. I well, mean, you probably need a player's handbook, too. Um, but I mean, so you need the you need up, that core three books. You need the core three books between you know two people. But the DM was always one that had to buy the two books, mm-hmm. at, the, at the very least. What I would like to see is one book that is a player's handbook that has everything that the players need. It has spells. It has you know basic equipment, but no magic items. Mm-hmm. It has you know all that kind of stuff that a player needs. Then you have a dungeon master's guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide contains the rules, you know, to run the game, to play the game, to mm-hmm. uh, run combat, you know, treasure and, and things. And it has monsters in it. And it has a description of how to design monsters from a brief standpoint. I agree. Abolishing, this is a crazy idea, the monster manual. No, I agree. I completely agree. Because then, here, here's why. And I then, think it's what you're going to get to. So I'm going to let you do that. Yeah. Then you put out a third book. That third book is... A campaign setting. The setting includes lots of monsters. It includes maybe some specific treasures or classes or races. You know, whatever you want to put in there that you you feel is not going to bloat the game with the stuff like you did in third edition. Right. But primarily, it becomes a source of unique monsters that you would face mm-hmm. in, and unique you know challenges you would face in that setting. Maybe mm-hmm. you include a dungeon in there as well. I, th- I think that that's really what a campaign setting should have. It should have a first level dungeon or adventure. It should have monsters of a number of a range of levels that are specific monsters to that setting and it should have the flavor to run the setting including you know deities or whatever else right but your players then go out and they buy specific campaign or your your dms go out and buy specific campaign books that have lots and lots of monsters in it and they have in one book all they need to run games in this in the place that they run the games the dm's guide tells you how to run a game on your own and it gives you the tools to do it but if you want to just go out and say, okay, I'm going to play an Eberron game, you buy the Eberron book, and not only do you have Eberron, you know, setting, Eberron people, you also have Eberron monsters right. that are just different enough from the other monsters, you know, like a generic template orc that you have in the monster in the uh, DMG. Now you have different orcs like the druid orcs, you know, the gatekeepers. Maybe some other kinds of orcs. Maybe you've got, you know, the hobgoblins of the Rukon Drawl. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, um, you've got this all the specific uh, flesh crafted monsters that the Dalton Living spells that we Living never spells. saw that we never saw in fourth edition. Yes, you have all of that stuff in a campaign setting that lets you put out you you could put out, you know, campaign setting books for each of the major ones. You could do Ravenloft. Mm-hmm. You'd have specific Ravenloft monsters in there. You could do Dark Sun. You'd have specific Dark Sun monsters in there. But it would be one book that would have all the stuff you would need to run a base game in that setting. And then you could maybe put out another book or two that expanded on the setting. And add the, the main thing that it would add are more monsters for maybe a third of the book. Mm-hmm. If you wanted a lot of monsters that were very, very setting-specific, flavor-specific, that were designed by the pros. I that, agree. I think, would have a, a much bigger selling point than the monster manuals that they were putting out in fourth edition. Cause I don't know what the sales numbers were like for those, but I bet they weren't good. No. And the reason is you get into the store when you, when you go to buy these monster manuals, you get into the store and you flip through the book and you make a decision. Do I want these monsters or do I not want these monsters and buy monster man and by monster manual, 
three, the answer is usually no. Why? Because they're, 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 they're stretching. They're reaching to give you interesting monsters. You know, I mean, and the reason for that is, I mean, it's pretty obvious. They can't put out a monster manual without having the monsters in it that you need. They can't put out a monster manual and not have orcs and goblins and skeletons and zombies and wraiths and liches and vampires and all the stuff that you're going to use, and dragons, all the stuff that you're going to use. They can't do that because people go, what the fuck is this? Yeah. And I mean, there would be rioting in the streets. The pitchfork sales would go through the roof. Yeah. It's just, and then they, see, that was that would be the only way they could put out multiple monster manuals and make them all what I would what I would say, quote unquote, buyable, which is a massive, which was a massive problem with third edition yeah. because you just got so many books that weren't buyable, Yeah, man. You just didn't give a fuck. They were just pointless. They put out some really, really great, uh, books where they really hit it on the head. I think specifically the arms and equipment guide that came out in third edition. Mm-hmm. I don't know why the hell we never got another arms and equipment guide. That was, uh, that was such a good book. I know. I know. Right. I'm everybody that I, I, everybody I think about that had it at least, a moderate collection of D&D books always had the arms and equipment guide. And it was always on the table because it had so much good information in it. Mm-hmm. You know, in fourth edition, they went a little bit further in making books that were interesting enough for you to buy. But they still did the same thing with, with monster manuals. I completely agree. You get away from monster manuals 100% and you put out there just your campaign settings that have your specific monsters. That's that's what I would like to see. So I completely agree with you on that. And if you wanted to, I mean, if, if, if the monsters were just not specific enough, like let's say Greyhawk, maybe you include in that Greyhawk setting book more dungeons, uh-huh. more challenges, more mm-hmm. things that you would specifically find here and there in Greyhawk. All the things that you just mentioned a minute ago, those all those monsters, you know, the orcs, the liches, the vampires, all that, those all would be in the DMG. Then well, you yeah, have... exactly. You get all of those monsters in yeah. the DMG. You take out all of the monsters that usually go in the DMG that people don't use as much, like the bullet and things like that, that people may know, but they're probably not going to. Honestly, I would say you would take out all high-level monsters entirely, with the exception of dragons. Throw a few high-level monsters in there. You have to keep dragons in there. Right. And, but a but you would cut the dragons down. Absolutely. You maybe give us just one type of dragon. Well, right, you, just give us. Uh, cr- you have uh, all the dragons. chromatics. You have all the chromatics, and you maybe have a note on there about metallic dragons. But you you keep just one type of dragon in there. Mm-hmm. That gives you the opportunity to later put out a, a big book of dragons that includes all the types of dragons. And call it big book of dragons. Hell yes. That's that's the thing. A big book of dragons, I would buy that. I'd buy a big book of dragons. I'd a buy a, big cr- book of a book of, about that. only chromatic dragons, I might buy that. You put one big book out of dragons, I will buy that. I would I would definitely buy a big book of dragons. If only because I think in a big book of dragons you're required to get dragons from level 1 to level 20 slash 30. Whatever your cap is. Yeah, whatever your cap is. You have you have your elder ancient worms down to your proto dragons, your drakes, things like that. So uh, that way, if you wanted to do like kind of like we discussed last week talking about the D and D movies, if you mm-hmm. wanted to do Dungeons and Dragons that included lots of dungeons and lots of dragons, you could do that at every, at every level and would be interesting. Yeah, and. The campaign setting book idea, you know, where you get rid of the monster manual and you put a lot of that stuff in the campaign settings, brings something else to mind. 
Do you recall those books like, you know, the planar guides that they put out in fourth edition, as well as some that they put in third edition that had uber high level NPCs, kind of like bosses in the very back of the book. Yeah. You know, they had the unique dragons. They had the unique, uh, I mean, one of them came with, I think the epic level handbook may have come with Mordenkainen in it. You know, it had epic level characters Mm. or really high level powerful NPCs in the back of the book. Your campaign settings let you do that. Right. Because you have... You know, a collection of monsters as well as like five or six really high-level possible threats in the back of that book. Right. You have high-level dragons. That would be campaign setting focuses. Exactly. You build your campaign setting around those guys. And hey, look, in your your campaign setting book, you have the tools to do that. Mm -hmm. When you don't need those tools in any other book. Right. They're completely useless. So, I mean, I, I think that is a really positive thing they could do in D&D Next. I'm, I'd be surprised if they do it, only because they've never done anything like that before. So, you know. I, I just think they talk too much about, you know, monsters and Monster Manual. I mean, I, I can't recall specific posts off the top of my head, but I know that they've been mm-hmm. doing so much talking about monster design and things, and I'm sure they've mentioned Monster Manual in there somewhere. And it's just to the point where, you know, for a lot of players, it's ingrained in their mind. PHB, DMG, Monster Manual. Right. And they're probably loath to break that up. Right. Because, you know, and on their mind, they may see, well, people, you know, it's a it's a book you people have to buy if you want to be able to play the game. Right. Not really, because no. I never bought a Monster Manual in 4th edition after they came out with their tool set online. 4th edition designing monsters was so simple as compared to 3rd edition that I never picked up a Monster Manual after the first one. I just didn't because there was no point for me as a DM. Right. Well, I mean, the the online tools didn't hurt that either. No, no, the online tools, you know, gave you access to a vast resource, mm-hmm. that you, so you didn't necessarily need the monster mm-hmm. manual. But even then, the, the monster manual or or the monster design in fourth edition was much cleaner and easier to put together. That, and 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 they're almost kind of going. They're almost reaching a point where you can build a blank generic monster. And then only add on one or two things and say that's an orc or that's a hobgoblin. And you don't necessarily need to do the sheer amount of, you know, handcrafted whatever to make it feel like a specific orc or a specific thing. You can do – I mean that's what um, a lot of the designers on the site, you know, talk about the most whenever they're discussing DM stuff. They're saying you don't necessarily have to build a big, big, big monster. You just make it – you take a generic one out of the book, give it a plus two or a minus two, and that's it. Right, or something interesting about him. I mean, you can... I've had the villains of small story arcs being a plus-two orc with an interesting with an interesting weapon. Yeah. That's all you gotta do. I mean, that's, that's all a villain is, really. A villain is 99% attitude and 1% the shit that he can do. Because, yeah. you know, especially single villains, unless you're dealing with... Like, world dragons and crap like that. Anyway, last thing that I want to say about D&D is this. D&D has never embraced the campaign setting the way they should. It's never, in my opinion, made campaign settings that third leg of the stool. Which I think it needs to be. Because the one thing that keeps people the most out of D&D is they're, they're concerned that it's going to be too difficult to to pick up, and there's a lot of information you have to learn 
whenever you're whenever you're learning how to play. There's a lot of stuff to take in. And I think being able to tell them, listen, if you can you can DM, all you need is this book and a little imagination and you know, we'll guide you through the games. I mean, I love a homebrew campaign as much as the next person, but to me that is a and I'll I'll say I love a homebrew campaign more than the next person. Yeah. And to me though, that is what I would consider like D&D masterclass kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Very high very high experience level in D&D to create your own campaign setting and make it fun. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to want to stick with, especially if you're new, especially if you're new, you're going to want to stick with D&D campaign setting. Mm-hmm. And, and they're good stuff. I've played great games in D&D campaign settings. So I, I really hope that that's something we see them do in, um, in D&D Next. Yeah, I'm going to... I agree that um, with you know, people like Brian Patterson that Greyhawk is actually... Um, a very has a very good chance to make a comeback with D and D next because it fits all the different things that Wizard wants to do. They want to show you know, hey, we're all about you know bringing everyone back to the table, and you know we're going to do it by bringing one of the settings that people clamor for the most. You know, the the older players or the the more established players. We're going to bring this back and we're going to present it in such a way that it introduces new players to it and it also lets. Uh, legacy players, you know, enjoy being back in Greyhawk. I th- I think that's that is a good move. If they do it wrong, it's going to wind up blowing in their face, blowing up in their face. Much like all their other decisions, they're walking a very very thin tightrope. Right. You know, I agree. I think a lot of people that are clamoring for Greyhawk are clamoring for nostalgia not as much as content because again i mean there's not a whole lot going on in greyhawk it's a good place to let your imagination run wild and make something interesting going on but you know you don't there's nothing that's established in greyhawk that is really interesting i would be nostalgia is what they're going for though if you look at the play test i mean the caves of chaos was an old old that's See, that – I think that is a – I think that is – this is a special case because new players aren't playtesting D&D next. They're going to go for new players. They're always going to go for new players because you have to. You can't create – the, the D&D you know, universe, the D&D fan base, you can't create specific D&D stuff for D&D players because a great swath of them are not going to buy your stuff. Because they have their pet campaign settings and anything you do is going to be terrible. I, I They are doing an old school thing for the playtest, but that's because you're dealing specifically and primarily with, you know, veteran D&D players. We have to look at this as, and I think it's it's 100% possible to create a D&D game that is enjoyable by all veterans and is easy for new players to pick up. Not simple, but easy to pick up easily understood rules. I think that it's possible to do that. Um, I think that will be and has been the greatest challenge of D&D is that, you know, when it started off as a, an offshoot of an of a miniatures game and kind of grew from there, you know, a lot of people were baptized in it by fire. Mm-hmm. And they had to learn and they had to figure out what the hell they were doing. 
you know, that's not something you can build into the experience. That's just something that happened. And it made it popular. And But now you, you kind of have to open it up to people who might otherwise be interested in it, or the hobby dies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is... That's something that I think they're going to do, and why I would push for Forgotten Realms to be the first campaign setting that's released. Because not only is it basic, but it's also got enough flavor in it that keeps people hooked. Personally speaking. Mm-hmm. So, Anyway, we're out of time. Um, if you would like to join in the conversation, just uh, shoot us a tweet. We're over at GIR Podcast. You can also kick us an email if you're uh, out and about on your phone. Uh, you can do that. I guess you could tweet on your phone too. Eh. Our email address is girpodcast at gmail.com. As always, our music is op prop featuring Esset. Check them out on youhord.no. Thanks for listening. Bar <laughs>